Sales development continues to grow in importance as a critical component of a successful go-to-market strategy. And with the explosion of new tools, technology, and processes, the sales development industry itself is thriving, as seen with the growth of the 10-bound sales development market map over at 10bound.com. On this podcast, we'll dive deep and go beyond sales development to think about the future of technology, processes, and tools in the industry with our host, noted futurist, author, and sales development practitioner, Justin Michael. Welcome to Beyond Sales Development. Tune in each week and be sure to hit subscribe, leave a comment, and turn on notifications to never miss an episode. And now, Beyond Sales Development with your host, Justin Michael. So yeah, I'm Justin Michael, and this is Beyond Sales Development, and I have Erwin Martin with us, who has been working in the inbound AI lead gen space, among other exciting spaces. How's your day going? My day is going very well. I'm in my parents' basement in Washington State, so you know one cannot complain. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm uh, just another day in paradise. I feel like I'm living in some kind of Don Henley lyric. I see <laughs> in your background you have Star Wars. You got Han Solo and Darth Vader there. That's right. My life's my, my boss and his sidekick. So <laughs> how it works. That's amazing. Well, this is a show about the future of where sales technology is, is glowing and going. So, you know, I know you got really close to it with a real attempt and I think execution of AI, which we started to call fake AI because there's so many rule sets and just, you know, automations masquerading as AI. So I'd love to hear what has been your exposure points to artificial intelligence and building a better mousetrap for inbound and outbound sales? Yeah, so I've used AI in a couple of different spots at Conversica, as well as my time at Cordoba, and even now my time now at Wire. But we talk about the inbound sort of lead flow process or how AI really works. You know, Conversica's AI actually is more than just rule sets. There's actually some real AI pieces to it. It has an intent model behind it to determine the differences between yeses and nos, which, uh, you know, we as human beings say we, you know, it's pretty easy to do, but for a computer to learn is actually very, very different. It's going to kind of give you a sense. So if, uh, if I were to ask you, hey, Justin, you know, would you like to learn more? And you respond back with, sure, why not? You know, you and I know that's a, that's a yes, but you have to train that model what that means. And of course, humans can be much more nuanced than that. So that was a really exciting piece behind the use of AI and the ability to, to generate or to, to take together different sentence structures and respond back in a very natural way made for the person who is on the receiving end not feel like they were talking to a bot, but actually thought they were talking to a real person. So that as a, for a sales leader means that now you have another member of the team that you can deploy wherever you want to across your lead set. And for a marketer, it means you have the ability to take that same asset and deploy it across your lead set as well too, allowing for more conversions or more more opportunities that could possibly fill fall into the bucket. So let me ask you, I see companies like Drift coming out with inbound op- automation from the front of the site. Conversico is, is a very interesting product from this perspective to take these massive inbound lead inflows. I, I remember I had an MDR on my team all day just trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. So is it similar to the live drift automation, you know, set? Is it using like what tech goes into it without getting into the proprietary side? Would you want to use a drift bot and something like a Conversica? 
You could. My time at Conversica, we had customers that used both Drift and then would convert over to Conversica. So the answer to that question is like, yeah, wherever you can automate that experience, you should be able to automate it, right? So like Drift is solving for the problem of how can I make a form fill easier and better to gather the information to qualify the lead on a website, which is really fascinating because if you've worked in marketing, you know, if you ask any more beyond like three questions, you're going to lose a lot of conversions on the website. And so Drift made it really easy. But you're right, having an MDR or having a brand new inbound SDR sit through, a, as one of my customers call it, a dump bucket of just junk, right? You know, here you get this kid, they're all excited. You sold them on the future. They're fresh out of college and you're like, hey, take this message and email these people. And guess what? Most of them will never call you back, email you back, and you're getting a lot of bounce messages. And if they do, it's going to be, they may be rude. And you can take that and automate that with, with, with our assistant you have the ability to, to really scale that out. And then you can take that new minted NDR and do what you should be doing anyways, like put them through some very bootcamp training, you know, so they feel like they've got a pathway out there versus sort of, you know, going through the ropes or going through what everyone else had to back in the day. Yeah, so it fits this theme. And, and I'd like to hear if you agree with it. Some studies even three years ago said that 70% of the XDR is my acronym for SDR, MDR, ADR, LDR. <laughs> it goes forever. Do you think it's true that 70% of the, this could be automated at today's technology? And where do you think the future of inbound and top funnel is going? Like, will more and more AI and ML replace that? Freeing up the reps and lowering the funnel where, the, where their jobs get replaced? Yeah, I'm just kind of curious how you see that narrative arc as being closer to this tech than a lot of people, because what you're doing now in Conversica, I'm sure you've seen some things that are previews of coming attractions. Yeah, so the answer to that question is you can automate a lot of what's sort of a rote, mundane sort of existence, and really, you're not going to replace the wrap. In fact, at my time at Conversica, we had, I think over 50% of our Salesforce customers increase their licensing for more seats because they're actually hiring more reps because you're creating more opportunities for individuals to do different things. So if you, if you think of the funnel, uh, and, I, and I think about the picture um, that Serious Decisions used to have about, you know, the different types of intent you're going to get down to before they become MQL. And then they talked about this model of, you know, signal, response, and action, you know, that has to happen. You know, Conversica really sat where that response and action piece is at. And so if you are somebody who's trying to implement an ABM strategy in a Series A startup or even a Series B or C, your limited resources and time to really go through and do all that account research. And I think AI can take a lot of that heavy lift for you to, for the marketer, for the salesperson to allow their reps to really do what they want. They should be doing like that very highly personalized message on the initial outreach. I don't think an AI can do that really effectively at this time. I don't think it's going to happen really anytime in the near future. I think uh, having a rep go through and do the research to find the key insights. I mean, an AI can surface up like news articles for them that may be scored as being insights, but it still takes that human mind to make the connection of what you're reading in one article to the person you're trying to email to and does it really matter to them? Does that story really matter? So what I think you're seeing what AI is doing is it's replacing all those like machine pieces that were part of like you know, Aaron Ross's sort of, you know, predictable revenue engine, right? Sort of making a factory of the, of the rep. And now we're making that rep more specialized, more educated in the sense of what they need to do to go out and engage because we're removing that sort of factory piece to it, right? And the robots weld the doors on so that the, 
the auto manufacturer can actually do the true quality control, do all that great stuff, and I get burned while trying to do it. Yeah, that's how I sort of see it. How do you coach a robot? Like, how do you fine-tune your outbound and inbound automation, even semi-automation? Because, one, it sounds like Conversica was passing the Turing test in a way. Yeah. Much like X.AI, if the rules looked right, if it wasn't a corner case and you got the response in the message, you might almost think it was a person. Does that ever get regulated? Does the ML ever get smart enough to do hyper-personalization like you just talked about, context, like finding minute 616 in the video and then linking it back? Well, so that, that sort of piece is, I think that's trainable and it's there. It's, it's all about your training desk, right? So all AI systems have a strong, uh, strong training desk. And we did a huge audit of ours. And it's also about how you train the assistant, whatever you're trying to train from an AI perspective. It's not a broad focus, it's a narrow focus, right? So, you know, in the ideal scenario, you would tell a human, like, look, go through all these leads, message every single one of them, vary it up a bit, but I really don't want you to change the copy too much because I know this copy works. And you're not going to find a human, not even a Rain Man type of human, you know, from the movie, she's going to go through and, and do that, right? It's just, it's just not how we're built. But you can have a machine do that. So if a machine has a very narrow task, then it becomes easier and easier to train. And then, you know, any exception that comes out goes to the train desk. And we had it set up that, I don't remember the statistics anymore, but it was a pretty, we would audit all the trains. They're pretty spot on and accurate. And so for that Turing test, it, the Turing test doesn't mean it has to be like you and me having a conversation. It has to be at that one point in time, the person on the other end who doesn't know what's behind the box or behind the glass believes it's another person they're talking to. And a lot of times we did pass that test. Now, are there times where it's failed? Yeah, there are a lot where it failed. I wouldn't say horribly, but it read the intent the right way as if you read it, you know, if you're speed reading things through. So it didn't necessarily pick up the nuances uh, on some things. But usually those were sort of corner cases that were out there. I think training your AI assistant going forward, wherever it may be that you're working with, you know, ideally what we were talked about in the future of Versica is really each rep having their own assistant and sort of molding it to what their needs were. So the so it wasn't just hyper-personalized to the person you're trying to reach out to, but also hyper-personalized to what the rep wants to have too for their funnel, right? So, and that's, that's I think the, that part is probably doable not too far away in the future. So that all, almost reminds me of an R2-D2, right? Like you're flying your spacecraft and you've got your droid or your C-3PO, which is yeah. customized to your droid needs. It goes really far, right? If you think of the models of SDR and AE and, and applying the Henry Ford supply chain, there was this book called The Machine by Justin Roth Marsh. As you project out where these roles go and the impact of technology on them, what does a sales organization look like in 2025 or 2035 or 2050? What are the humans doing? What are the machines doing? How sophisticated does it get and how fast? Well, so what I see happening is... So there's another good book called, you know, Humans Are Irreplaceable, and I forget the name of the author. I used to have my reps sort of read it and give it out to prospects as well, too. And it talks about all the things where AI is really good at, and it talks about all things where humans are really good at. And the piece where humans are really good at is where that creativity has to really come into place. And I don't, yes, an AI can create a piece of artwork, and an AI can beat someone at Go, and out things sort of different. But it's looking, at that part, it's looking through a series of algorithms or, you know, formulas to, to come up with the, the conclusion. So sales in 2025, 2035, 2055, what I see is I see a replacement, the specialization is going back to that sort of factory piece of things, of now going back to where reps used to be back in, I would say, in the old days, where the rep had to 
you know, really know a lot about many different things to really connect with, with the prospect and really provide value in the conversation. And the rep's role isn't just there to take an order and service up pricing, but really uncover what's the real problem behind the problem that you're trying to solve for. So an example I would always say at Conversica is what appears on the surface is lead follow-up is the issue that we're trying to solve for. The reality is we're solving for turnover and ability to get assets or, or, or ability to get you know budget to hire more people to scale, right? We're really solving for a core problem that impacts that person's job, career aspirations, et cetera. And so I think you see AI will go through and, again, take away a lot of the pieces that humans have a hard time sort of doing. Like I would say forecasting accurately sometimes is really tough for some people. Getting past the phone fear or getting past the email fear, that the AI can pick that piece up, allowing the human then to really do what they do best, which is be creative and come up with solutions and provide value. I think you'll see sales organizations won't be huge armies of people anymore, probably. But you'll see a lot more of those individuals be really well respected and going back to what they always want to be, which is, you know, the the advisor, the trusted advisor to to their customer. That's such a great answer. I really like Kai Fu Lee in China, that futurist. He, he talks a lot about like creativity and empathy. How about like a Google Duo phone call? Would this ever be <laughs> oh, like that. or regulated? Where Yeah, where the machine calls a local business on the phone. The ad they did that was all uh, staged. Yeah, I think that tech could probably be built similar to a Conversica where it's reading these decision trees that are sort of optimized based on a quick, just-in-time, natural language processing of what the person says and then could think on the fly and have, you know, the the girl with the cybernetic head who can kind of almost have a conversation with Will Smith. I don't know if you've seen that video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, or go back to like, you know, if you look at, if you watch Westworld in the first season when... The madam's character is like, she's talking and showing her decision tree as she goes through like all the way she's going to say things. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that, that piece is pretty close to, to, I think, rudimentarily being done. I think there's a lot that's going to be worked on. But I do think there's a lot of regulation that's going to go around that as well, too. The one thing that people don't want to feel is feel duped by machine, especially if they, if they think there's implied empathy in that machine. And so there's going to be some regulation definitely coming down the pike for that, for sure. Yeah, I get some really creative robocalls that are phishing attempts, right? That are feel like they are from a robot voice. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But if it was nicer and it was a better conversation, then there's a question of like, will there be a warning label? I thought this futuristic scenario was interesting. Like email does pass the Turing test, is hyper-personalized. A machine yep. can call you on the phone, but it has to say, Hello, Erwin. This is Justin Michaels' AI, like in the movie Her. It like contacts you, or there's like a blinking dot. It, and then if I know, how is that much different from calling my insurance company or some IVR that's walking yeah. me through? They're advanced. Their tech's kind of sophisticated. Like, did you take anything from IVR systems when you were thinking about inbound programming? So I, I don't think we did. I, I, I think we did some part of it, but I'd not be up for the engineers. But you're right. Their stuff is very sophisticated, and they can even take a mumbled voice like mine pretty well and understand what I'm trying to say. So yeah, they're very <laughs> Well, for me, ironically, I'm always just like agent support. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there really are distinct openers and closers? Do you think this bifurcation of skill sets makes sense? Because what I hear from reps is we need to applaud the SDR and we have to have these career and advancement tracks for SDRs. But when you look at the full P&L of the quotas the AEs have and the margin and having to pay the AE and then the SDR, it's just hard for the CFO to justify that type of payout all the way. So is it really a failure to exalt 
inbound and outbound SDRs, or is there better tech needed or better acronyms or a better design? I mean, the predictable revenue model is sensational for efficiency and hyperscaling 2010 and 2020. It still works. Aaron's yeah. involved it. But I'm just curious if you, I'm sure you've thought deeply on these subjects being so focused on, you know, inbound and telephony and B2B sales. Yeah. So I think there is a failure to, I wouldn't say exalt the SDR, but to really lay out what a career path is for a sales development rep. Like what does, what does it mean to be like a senior or I would say professional SDR, right? You know, their job is pretty brutal. It's a routine job. It's not an exciting job. And it's one that I think when a CFO is looking at like what the profit line is for them, you have to go look at the entire efficiency of how you source not only the pipeline, but how that pipeline closes in long-term downstream effect. And we actually, at Conversco, May Sembeck, who was my director of FP&A, actually built a model that did that. We could actually look at what deal, at any point in time in the funnel, from the beginning of the funnel to the to if they're already a customer, who sold that deal, where that where was that deal sourced, who sourced that deal as an SDR, and how efficient they were. And one of the things that we were looking to do is the efficiency to understand like the number of touches, the, the types of touches, and, and really what was the conversation piece that was making that person move one way to the next. And I think if you look at the SCR as a component to, to generating that revenue and making it, you know, always making there's more opportunities that are available, I think you have an ability to, to look at that territory they, they claim and say, okay, by itself with marketing, that territory can generate X amount of leads for a rep or opportunities. But in reality, I still need to have that person in the chair to get to 100% of what we want to attain from an opportunity perspective. I started my my sales career as a field sales rep at Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. And the one thing that they did very well is they really pushed and he praised on the field rep. Now every rep wanted to get promoted. That was like the, the for some stupid reason. I don't know why we did, but we always want to get promoted. And the reality is that you would see senior district managers and senior leaders and their last few years at the company go back to being a field rep. And one, it was as they've gone to the territory they're retiring into. So it was an easy move but also because that was the more glorified path at the end. And if you think about it, you're knocking on doors every day, talking to doctors, getting yelled at, and called lots of names. And I don't know what it's like anymore. I don't think it's as, as easy as it was when I was there. And there's, so there's a reason why to keep, pay, keep that praise all the way down. I mean, the real money was, was made at the regional level and at the district manager level. And if you were an institutional, you know, higher, higher level rep. But the reality, the, by doing that, you know, you've got a lot of people who want to stay in territory. And there was a career trajectory for them. To always be like a, a rep, there was promotion paths within titles. There was incentives for them to stay. There was, you know, really a lot to give them because that rep in that territory, even though the territory itself could generate eighty to ninety percent of the sales for the territory, and as I say, prescriptions go, that rep is so impactful because of the relationship they can have. And I think you can have an SDR do that. I think one of the sad parts of, of an SDR is they're they're sort of show up, throw up, book the meeting, and move on. And I think the reality is that if you're doing a true ABM strategy, it's not the AE that needs to know everyone inside that account. It's the SDR. It's the AE's job to pull through the larger tactical and strategic vision of the organization. But that SDR should be tactically on the ground, working the hallways that they could of that building or of that company and really, you know, be rewarded for firing out and understanding, you know, trends that, you know, hey, rep A's got a deal here. But the reality is what I've heard is that the company is about ready to go under because of whatever thing. And what rep A is selling you a pipe dream when it comes to the forecast. That would be really interesting to see if that would really, you know, get that case to happen. Definitely a different world there. I'm thinking of Blade Runner analogies, like the Nexus 6 replicant that has like a four-year life and wants to, to keep living. 
I used yeah. to go into companies, you know, sometimes the lights weren't on and that could be reflective of the actual business state. Just to switch gears there, what kind of technology were you implementing as the stack as far as your ability to run sales, to loop in the go-to-market strategy, demand gen? There's this emerging category called revenue operations, which is like marketing operations, sales operations. There's CCOs now who are overseeing both marketing and revenue and then there's systems like lean data where you can visualize it all how did you approach selling such an advanced technology or and now as well what stacks do you prefer this is not really a vendor shout out for a preference but more like what does the tech need to do and how do you solve some of these problems in the sales motion inbound and outbound i mean it's a really loaded question <laughs> i think five billion is about to be poured into this space by 2023 says aragon research so read that in forbes so the tech I use at Conversica and, and I've sort of permeated through. So I wrote stacks down into what empowers the rep and then what provides me visibility into what's going on without, you know, the rep feeling like I'm up their butt the entire time checking Salesforce. And then what can help me predict down the road where to go for the next part of the business, right? How many sort of vision. So to help the rep, we had outreach. We also use sales off as well too. So I'll, I'll shout out all the tools that we use, but so sales acceleration, super important, right? Fine-tune that. I mean, outreach is really my go-to. Fine-tune. Lean data we use from, to route marketing to get rid of deduping to help really clean the system up. Obviously, use Salesforce as our CRM. And then we used to use like Hoopla and stuff like that to motivate for some gamification, especially with the SDRs. And even with the AEs, you know, we had some fun little contests. We worked with that as well, too. Then to visualize how things were going in the business, we first started out with Top Ops, which was pretty decent. I did a bake-off between Top Ops and Clary, Top Ops 1. Primarily because the rep who was using it, you know, I saw an increased improvement. But a year later, I switched out for Clary because of the ability to tie into Salesforce and really surface up a lot of activity around the deal, the deal flow and the deal cycle. And it, from a forecasting, it became really accurate very quickly for us to the point where I could start a month and I would know before the end of the month, unless there were some surprises, pretty much where we would finish. I used, with, in conjunction with my FP&A, we would use Tableau to look at five-year trends and then also look at like you really dig down and clean up the data we had in our Salesforce from a data visualization point of view and also do some analysis around that as well too. And then it's an old but lovey, you know, sort of tech stack to empower my reps is I would take sales training books, buy them books. You know, it's not tech, but tactile tech and use that to really help them, you know, learn more and hone their crafts. We use sales demo. I think we had, at the time I was already leave, we were looking for at, at like, Showpad for sales and implement and limbs all on that as well too. What I've carried over my role now, my role now is very unique because we have a lot of privacy. We work a lot of privacy in the security space. So we're really sensitive to the information we use, but I'm about ready to in install lean data again because we're having routing issues and it just helps you visualize and in one click and drag, you can just change territories without having to really go through and minutia, you know, through it through Salesforce, which is really fascinating. We're using outreach again as well too. As I start to build up enough volume, I'll build in, you know, probably Clary again, just because it does really help show all those different pieces that are there and help project forward what the forecast is going to be. And then I still use Tableau to, to do a lot of data visualization for planning, for territory planning, and, and as well as for, for financial planning. Love it. Such a thoughtful response and so many great, you know, I don't even call them vendors when they're that, it becomes your stack. It becomes how you visualize. Now, a $64 million question is, what is the next order of stack that you need if you were to apply things like predictive analytics 
or big data or AI to the stack you just mentioned or converged or, you know, what was missing, not to call out future roadmap for these types of vendors, but what would you love to be able to see? An example would be, I have 10 reps. They're the same exact closer skill set, maybe, but these two keep doing well. They have, you know, all things considered, and I can't see there's this blind spot, or maybe it's more opportunistic, but I'm curious if as you've built these stacks, there's been, there's that one I want. I hear Clary is fantastic because you can put medic in it and have some methodology. So that one comes up a lot. Did you use Medic for qualification? We used Medic for qualification. And then I sort of use a hybrid of Medic and Bands in my last position, looking at what's called a chain of commitments. So there's uh, the book called The Law Start of Closing. And in that book, he talks about there's 10 sort of chains you have to get, chains of commitment you have to get to. And, you know, we use Gong. I use Chorus as well. I've got to add that in a stack. Both really good. The one thing I would love to see is when a deal goes to one, I would love to see a tool that pulls in all the information and then maps it out in an after action review of like what happened, right? Because trying to get a rep to self-diagnose that, you know, they want to go take their commission check or their, you know, their win and go out and party hard like a rock star and then come back the next day. <laughs> and, and so the, I think what you see is like those two top reps, if they're, if they're flying high, you know, in a weird way, they don't want to necessarily share the secret sauce. And I don't, I never really understood why that was that I mean, I'm different that way. Well, one, because they're partying pretty, probably too hard and they can't even do it. And I, I'd love to see that. At the same time, I would love to look at like a loss, like when opportunity is lost, not when it's lost because there's no activity, but when it gets close to the finish line and for some reason it dies in the vine, like why? And the same thing, once it flips the loss, have an application that pulls all that information together and then starts to just show you, you know, what you miss, compare it to what a similar size deal and why it would win. And then, of course, in the ideal world, you would have the ability to blindly see that across where you sit against your competitors and in your industry to know, are you above the fold or below the fold when it comes to, to being top dog and stuff like that. And there's a lot of decisions that are made blindly without knowing. Like some kind of interactive benchmarking. What strikes me, right, is everyone has a stack. And so it's like you're a technologist almost by virtue of running a tech company outbound and inbound effort. Yep. What advice do you have to maybe sales leaders or aspiring sales leaders younger in their careers who are excited about either breaking into the space that you're in or kind of getting to where you are in your career as someone that, you know, has run American teams and sort of a GM and a, and a real leader of this stuff. Is it important for them to build up their chops on this kind of analysis? I mean, you've really embraced all these technologies. Some sales leaders are dyed in the wool old school, like, pad and pen, walk the halls with the putter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, is that well, part of your to... secret sauce that you, that you embrace the tech you're using? <laughs> embrace the tech I'm using. I still use pad and pen, right? And uh, trust but verify, you know, what you're seeing on the tech. I think the reality is that sales leaders these days should remind themselves that technology is there to solve a problem. It's not there to create the future, right? So going back to... You know, if you understand what your problem is, like going back to Conversica, the problem is, yeah, lead fault's really an issue, but it's really solving the human problem. I can't hire enough reps, got turnover, whatever it may be. If you had first diagnosed what your problem is. And the reason why I turned to Clary in the beginning was because my reps had a hard time forecasting accurately. And I had a hard time looking at Salesforce the way we had it designed to see where the blind spots were. And it helped open up all those blind spots, right? So that was the tool. And then just, I still had like forecast means. I would still you know, write hand notes and stuff like that, and, you know, marry it up to what I saw on the numbers and see how close we got to accuracy to the point where I could trust the tool to do what it was supposed to be doing. 
I think sales leaders should, you know, hone their chops and embrace technology and should understand that it can be very supportive for them and then let the tool do what it's supposed to do and focus on, you know, really doing those, those soft, empathetic, creative skills that I think a lot of reps actually lack. And I was on a call earlier today in an interview and the guy asked me great questions. Like, what are you worried about? I'm like, well, I'm worried about my pipeline stuck in one section a little bit too much. I go, but I'm worried about, I can't find the talent that I want to have. And the talent I want to have, you know, goes into a room, doesn't matter what level of the organization is and asks really good questions that gets the person to stop and think and want to have a conversation. And that rep isn't worried about like how much money they're going to make, but more important, like, does this person influence my overall ability to get a larger piece of the pie? Because I'm now seen as someone who provides not just value, but really provides for them a means to help them reach their career aspirations, help them reach their inspirational goals. And can I really make them think more outside that box to find their human problem? And I think right now, a lot of reps focus on the tech to, to drive their success. I think a lot of reps just focus on the motion. And I think a good sales leader, if you can get the tech to do all that work for them and get the rep out of the way and focus on those skills, those reps will be, they'll be killers. Fantastic, Erwin. Thanks for your time today. Any closing words? Uh, hope we went a little beyond sales development. Sounds a little bit like Bed Bath & Beyond, my title. Sort of went for Jetsons and William Shatner here. I, I really wish I could get like a Star Trek shirt and do some of his moves where like all his surprising. The original Star Trek's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what are you, some closing thoughts on the show, on the topic, and uh, where can people find you? Yeah, it's a great topic. I think it's a, it's a good show. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there to do. I mean, just focus on, on the area that you do best and, you know, use either talent or tools to cover what you don't do very well. If you want to find me, uh, my name is super easy to find. I'm on LinkedIn. I usually accept most that, you know, most requests, not always all of them. I'm on Twitter as well, too, by my, by, by my first name. And I'm now at a great company called Wire, which does end-to-end encryption in the collaboration space. So, and again, if you're on Wire, I'm at, at Erwin. It's super easy to find. Awesome. Thanks again for your time. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Thanks, Aaron. Yep. Cheers. Cheers.